All the faces that I'm painting are from found selfies. So these are pictures of people that I found on dating sites and they are strangers to me. And so I'm using their image. And I like the idea of the split because of our swiping and and like going to the next one and the next one and the next one where we, whether we're on a dating site or not, we become the product you know, people are developing their brand, people are curating their profile so that they're presenting a life to the viewer, the audience, how they want to be perceived. And that's interesting to me. And and so the split face was partly that idea of not seeing a whole person, but I'm also putting them in combination with each other. So it's also like a little matchmaking thing. And sometimes it's for like, People that would never be matched together, putting them together. So there's a tension there or or just these faces look good together. So I'll see how I can make a composition out of it. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 298th episode, I'm really excited to be joined by Jeff Stevenson, who's a multimedia artist and curator at Governor State University, amongst other things. We talk all about his studio practice, as well as his background, and so much more in the interview coming up. We also highlight his upcoming solo exhibition at Studio Break Gallery, Cross Section, The Many Faces of Jeff Stevenson. It opens Sunday, December 3rd, from 2 to 5 p.m., and there's another opening Saturday, December 9th from 4 to 8 p.m. So please come on out to West Chicago and join us and see some fabulous work. Please make sure to give him a follow on Instagram. That's at Jeff Stevenson Art. I do want to remind any artists listening out there that our 2023 professional competition is extended through December 15th. So if you would like to apply, Jeff Stevenson will be juring for us and will be selecting Five artists to appear on an upcoming episode of Studio Break, one artist for a solo exhibition, and groups of artists for two small group exhibitions at Studio Break Gallery in West Chicago. It's super easy to apply. You submit a small fee, you send off all of your information, and you are done. Once again, head on over to studiobreak.com under the competition page for more details. Of course, if you haven't checked out our archive on studiobreak.com, we've got a big bunch of artists there. You can scroll through, check them all out. Each of those posts have images of the artist's work, links to their websites. You can listen right there on Studio Break or subscribe in Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can find us on social media, so be sure to like our Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter X at Studio Break and of course on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. Be sure to give a follow, say hello, and we are now ready Let's dive right into this interview with Jeff Stevenson. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break. Jeff Stevenson, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing all right. You know, we kind of had a chilly install yesterday for your exhibition that's coming up, The Many Faces of Jeff Stevenson at Studio Break Gallery. So excited for that. I hope you guys can join us Sunday, December 3rd from 2 to 5, and then Saturday, December 9th from 4 to 8 p.m. So please come join us. Um, A lot of great work and plenty of new stuff as well to kind of check out things that are hot off the studio table, I guess. (laughs) So, you know, before we kind of dive into this, you know, you're currently the director and curator for the Nathan Manilow Sculpture Park and Visual Arts Gallery at Governor State University, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. You got it. Absolutely. And obviously we'll kind of talk a little bit about your curatorial experience and be excited to kind of dive into all of this. So again, thanks so much for doing this. And I love starting out at the beginning. So, you know, kind of doing a little bit of research, uh, you know, it's odd that I don't know necessarily where everybody's from. Yeah, I grew up in Pennsylvania, but then I did my um, college years at The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. And then I did graduate work at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. Kind of thinking about back to Pennsylvania then. So what was that like? I mean, were you like a a rural uh, person? Were you in the city or... Uh, We lived in kind of a typical suburban development, but the really magical thing about that was it was on the edge of wooded area with a river and... To go, and those were back in the days when you could go exploring as a kid and your parents let you roam. I was a free range child. Yeah, for sure. So 
outdoors and about, um, I'm assuming maybe then you were going out there to draw maybe sometimes, or is that something that came a lot later? I mean, I was always an artist, but the woods were really, it's sort of that thing where you refill your energy. I mean, you know, not as a kid, you just go out and you play, right? Mm -hmm. I do remember as a young person, probably more like junior high, I took my parents' brownie camera Mm-hmm. And headed out in to get those art shots, reflections on the water and, you know, <laughs> really cool close-ups of stuff. And uh, my parents just didn't even know what to do with me. They're like, you're taking the camera to do what? <laughs> well, that's interesting. Was that something that kind of like spilled out into other areas, you know, as you're kind of growing up? Because again, you know, some artists never, never play sports. Some artists grew up with a pencil in their hand. Uh, you know, some have that after school program or something, but was there anything else aside from this experience earlier that you were specialized or is it just more coloring and coloring books and stuff like that? One of the things that I remember was that our parents or a relative got us a book on cartooning, me and my brothers, and we just studied that thing. You know, it kind of gave you a demonstration of how to draw all these different characters and we loved it, but I kind of loved it a little bit more. And then one year, I do remember my mom went and bought oil paints and I was in junior high, you know, I was still probably sixth, seventh grade, seventh grade. And she came home with all these oil paints and art supplies because the paint store was having a sale. And she was like, oh, Jeff likes art. I'll get him some oil paints. And they sat around for a little while. And then all of a sudden I just like started painting and I did, you know, like 18 by 24 canvases of flower arrangements or copying, you know, a greeting card image or something like that. And again, my parents were like, I don't know, we don't know what to do with this child. <laughs> but yeah, it was good. That Was that something like in school that you were like taking classes going through junior high and, and stuff like that? I mean, everybody loves art class. At least, you know, you kind of get to goof around and do stuff and projects. But what's funny about that, I always loved art class and excelled. But then when we had a choice, I stopped signing up for art class because it was kind of, you know, it was like craft projects and I wanted to do real art. And by the time I got to high school, I realized because I wanted to apply to college to go to medical illustration. I was like, you know, I probably should take some art classes again. And then my teacher found out that I was making these paintings at home. And I had this whole like vast supply of oil paintings that I had done. And he arranged to have me exhibit it in the hallway at our high school. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is, I was a pretty quiet kid. I wasn't involved in sports or anything. I kind of kept to myself. And then all of a sudden there's this show of my artwork and like, everybody's like, what's going on? How's this possible? You know, <laughs> but that's how you get voted best in art in your high school yearbook. <laughs> oh, nice. An honor, right? Yeah. yeah it's on my, on my resume. <laughs> well, I'm curious then, how did you start kind of getting, I guess, geared more interested towards like medical illustration? Is it something where it was just like, I got to do something practical because Artists don't make any money. And this is the gravy train, if you will. That's it. Exactly. And, you know, like my my parents were very like old school. My dad had an economics degree. My brother went into electrical engineering and they were sort of like, how about computer programming? That would be good for you. You know, and as you know, I knew I wanted to do art and this seemed like a respectable way to do it because of all the negative stereotypes out there about artists or, you know, that you the starving artist you can't have a living if you're an artist all of that stuff so yeah and did you have any idea what that entailed i mean again as somebody that's a listener now an active listener of this conversation i have no idea what that might entail i'm assuming that you're like oh, i'm going to be studying anatomy and who knows drawing dissections i have no idea yeah i mean i was pretty naive going into it and it was at ohio state university the first two years you took regular fine art studio classes, and you had to apply to the Allied Medical Professions College where the they admitted six students a year into the medical illustration program. So, and I, I don't know how many applied, maybe they only had six, but um, <laughs> sure. it felt competitive. And I knew that it was precision and realism and detail that they were looking for. And I was not bad at that stuff. I did pretty well. But but after I got into the program, then I realized, 
and you know and earned the degree <laughs> i realized that there was a big difference between fine art and illustration at the at the time i didn't understand that at all were you somebody that kind of gravitated then to kind of like learning as much as possible in those initial art classes again maybe kind of give us a glimpse into this cuz i'm just curious what a a younger kid jeff is is looking like kind of approaching these classes yeah, I I remember really loving the art classes, even even the art history. I was really good at memorizing facts, so I really enjoyed that. I was much more in the mindset of getting a good GPA than I was about I like most kids. You want to learn, but you're really like let me have the proof that I learned. Mm-hmm. But I loved the art classes and the art studios were open late at night. You could pretty much go in and out of the building anytime you wanted to. And I would definitely go over extra and work on stuff outside of class time. So I was pretty into it. But but that was the, you know, like the fine art studio stuff and, you know, figure drawing and doing even still life paintings and things like that. And I was really into it. But at the time I was doing it, I was thinking of it as a vehicle to get into the medical illustration program. And that was the goal. But then once I got into medical illustration, I really missed the studio art. And the medical illustration program started to tell me, well, that's too creative. You can't do it that way. Like it's not done that way. You're an illustrator. You have to do it this way. And I was like, I don't want to do it that way. So, so did you, you finished your degree though, in, in terms of that, what did that look like? Did you have to have like, just like a crazy portfolio? Cause if they're not kind of emphasizing the creative side of it, I don't know, usually there's like a exhibition of some kind or something. I don't know if you had to make your own book or something. <laughs> it was definitely just like, we had to take anatomy classes. We had to take physiology and histology you know, they had a huge teaching program at Ohio State. So we would go into the operating room and observe surgeries. And I remember having to climb up on this ladder and lean over with a camera into an open heart surgery to take a picture. And I was like, what if I drop this camera? (laughs) This is not a good idea. But it was a fantastic education. And the experiences were just really bizarre. And, you know, we were dissecting cadaver material and really side by side with the medical students. And then, yeah, in terms of the artwork, I had a portfolio. We had to present it and review it with our faculty, but it wasn't really as big a deal as the uh, the medical part of it. Mm-hmm. And so what happened after that then? Did you t- tell us a little bit about what happened after that? Because again, I have no idea what that profession entails in terms of like, ah, I'm going to go out and apply for these jobs for illustration, I guess. I don't know. I did apply to a couple of jobs. As you would imagine, it's a really specialized field. There aren't a whole lot of positions. I do remember sending off portfolios and that kind of thing. And I did a freelance job for acquaintance, friends that I knew she was a dietitian and needed a sort of a presentation package to do at conventions and things like that. So I put that together for her. But I never really worked in the field. And of course, I got a job at a bank like you do. (laughs) And then one day you're working on deposits and it's like, why am I doing this? Yeah, I, I think I pretty clearly saw that it was just a way to earn money. And then I enrolled in evening classes at the Columbus College of Art and Design because that was sort of my realization years of where I was not really that interested in illustration. It started out, I was going to take like airbrush and watercolor and things that you would use in illustration, but then pretty soon I'm into figure painting and figure drawing and, you know, that crazy world of expressing yourself through your art. That's when I decided to apply to graduate school. So I worked for the bank for about four years. I went through a couple of rounds of applying to graduate schools and I got into Ohio University's program. And I just thought, well, I can always come back to a job as a bank supervisor in a credit card division warehouse cubicle job if I really need to. Mm-hmm. But now's the time to go to graduate school if this is you know what I want to do. So that's what I did. And, and what was that like in terms of that initial start? Because I would imagine, you know, like you're 
talked about going into medical illustration not too long ago and kind of have a, a glimpse of what that looks like. I'm assuming then you're, you know, getting into these like heavier, you know, art theory classes and, you know, you're learning to write and and read and and think about your work in a different way than than you had certainly is something that's more of like almost like a hardcore, you know, medical student of some kind. You know, like, again, it seems so interesting to think about. What was that like? You know, my memory of graduate school is really the social aspect of it and the camaraderie between the graduate students and and our faculty for that matter we had a really pretty great faculty and it felt really yeah it felt like i was in the right place and i was really enjoying it there was nothing about it that was problematic for me i really really kind of thrived in that environment it was it was good and i probably was thriving a little bit too much and they did i won't say that it was easy I um, actually ended up on probation after my first year, which is a, a story I love to tell my students, especially when they're struggling. And what it was, my committee really just told me, they're like, it's not that we're thinking about, you know, kicking you out of the program. Don't worry about that. But we're not going to pass you through your first year review because you haven't found your voice. You know, you're not doing work that is compelling and focused and you don't seem to care and I didn't you know it was like I was just making paintings and it was I was making a lot of work but it didn't kind of come together as purposeful and so that it kind of took the wind out of my sails it was really pretty hard news to take and then but I turned it around and you know really used that energy to figure out what I wanted to do and you know, I knew that I wanted to make large scale work at the time. So I started getting big canvases. I knew I wanted to do figurative narrative work. And I wanted to do stuff that was more from my own life. I had been sort of appropriating a lot of media images. Mm-hmm. And I was doing that without knowing the power that those media images hold. Like even after you interpret them and paint them, they're still media images. Yeah. And then I had some a really good time with making those big paintings of people I knew and in a symbolic way, I was doing more narrative stuff and, and really starting to explore the whole thing of masculinity. And, and I wasn't even out at the time as a gay person, I was still very closeted. I mean, everybody around me knew I was gay, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I wasn't comfortable. And, you know, it was clear that that's what my work needed to be about i needed to explore those dynamics and those issues and identity or masculinity femininity all that kind of stuff were there any like artists like in terms of art historical that you started looking at or was it kind of more like you're saying you're kind of all the conversations the late nights in the studios where you feel like nothing's working out the artists that really inspired me here's the funny thing so it's like um john singer Sargent, right but I'm drawn to him because of the beautiful paintings that he's doing and the way that art history has all of this kind of concealment and subterfuge. It took me a long time to figure out that he's gay Mm -hmm. and like nobody talks about it. And Michelangelo, you know, it's like, well, everybody loves Michelangelo, but nobody talks about his affinity for men and the way that he expressed himself about that stuff. So I really kind of, tapped into some of those artists Uh, and then a funny thing that happened was i was using photography as source material for my painting so i would photograph the people that i was painting and i would photograph their head and and, you know this is back in the 35 millimeter you actually get prints made of these (laughs) photographs so um not digital i would photograph their head their torso their legs their feet right like four stacked photographs and everybody would walk into my studio and go oh you need to look at david hockney (laughs) david hockney's photographs david hockney david hockney i had never looked at any of that work and that's exactly what i was doing i was doing these fragmented views like standing close enough to someone that you can't see the whole person you've got to take pictures of them in sections and then put those photographs together and so david hockney is a huge hero of mine i love his work and then i'm like oh my god david hockney is gay (laughs) well it's it's interesting too because i'm you know looking at you know your instagram um you know jeff stevenson art kind of going through you know just having stuff up randomly and i just think like all right i mean like that idea of a narrative a fragmented 
you know, idea of oneself kind of exploring that masculinity. I mean, those are things that I still see, you know, kind of there. I think so. And so it's interesting to think about that. You know, I know, again, a lot of times artists will talk about, you know, things coming in cycles or waves, but I mean, like, you know, there's, I don't know, maybe like these root things that we kind of are, you know, exploring and that seems to kind of keep changing, you know, as, as we move from series to series. Well, tell us a little bit about like then what the, the final works that you were doing there after you finally got off of uh, academic probation. <laughs> well, they were, uh, <laughs> biggest paintings were nine feet tall and they were these standing male figures. I was really interested in feminism because of the intersectionality about women's experiences and and minorities. And, you know, and, and I, I should mention too, I was working for the Department of Residence Life, which I also found to be a very nurturing environment. The program there was really progressive and they were doing some great things. And as a staff member, I was a hall director, I supervised RAs. I was encouraged to do programming around sexism, racism, heterosexism. The whole department really supported that kind of education in the living environment. So alongside my art pursuits and my uh, degree seeking, I was also working in that environment to pay for it. But it was it was really a great place for me to be. It was very safe and supportive and educational. I learned so much. And part of that was working on ideas around feminism. And I think for me, like a lot of people still to this day will ask me why I'm not making paintings of women. And I've seen that art history is so skewed towards the male view, especially the male view of women and objectifying women and really presenting that one way that art history is just sort of built on that, that I, in graduate school, I found it really hard to escape that dynamic. Like if you make a painting of a woman, you're representing this idea that has been there for so long, right? So I did things, they definitely did portraits of individuals being themselves. I didn't try to glamorize or idealize or put my own perspective on top of their image. But then that was really pretty much it for painting images of women. <laughs> and then I just was like, you know, this is where the energy is for the, what I'm thinking about. It's the male experience. It's the cultural bias. It's the, it's the things that really turn our culture on its head is when you start to play around with this idea of maleness and masculinity, especially during that time, I'm talking like the eighties and nineties, right? Mm -hmm. 1990s, there was no collective consciousness of, of gay life outside of AIDS and death and dying and tragedy. There was no will and grace. There was no, mm -hmm. there were, there were a few, you know, indie films that were, out there that were um, depicting gay characters in more positive ways, but it was like, you know, nobody existed. No gay people really existed in the, in the media. But I will say this, um, speaking of media, in Madonna's Blonde Ambition Tour, there's a scene where they're, you know, it's her and her dancers and they're all being fabulous and crazy. And, you know, they're obviously gay. A bunch of them. And so, or it was truth or dare. I mean, that was the title. Anyway, so she's like, I dare you. She says to one of the dancers, I dare you to go over and kiss that other dancer. And then they just like full on French kiss tongue. And everybody's like cheering and around the table. But people in, I was actually in the theater for that. And people in the audience were repulsed and moaned and like, ah, and, and like wanted to get out of the theater because I was in, you know, middle of Ohio in the 19, whenever <laughs> that was. And that really struck me because it's like this idea of masculinity is the movies that we watch where men are fighting and killing each other and there's blood and mayhem, everybody's cheering and like, that's what we want. And then two men show affection or uh, closeness or sexuality towards each other. And that's repulsive. And, and to be able to get at that as an artist is really of interest to me. I don't, I don't know that I'll ever get there. 
Well, it seems like that's the quest, right? Is to continue to kind of explore that content, continue to try to bring it to light. You know, um, it seems like that, you know, that idea of, you know, finding your own path or finding your, your voice, I think you said, you know, it seems like we're almost always trying to do that or try to do it better or hit the night, hit the right notes. So big chunk of space in between there. So, so let's see if we can't fill this in. When, when did you start getting involved in curation? And I know that also you had some experiences teaching afterwards. Is that something that kind of came after graduate school or? I taught as a a graduate assistant in TA in graduate school. So I did manage to do that and I enjoyed doing it. I like the classroom experience and it was a, a drawing class. So I worked for the Department of Residence Life, as I said, and I continued doing that and I kept making my own artwork. As a hall director, you get an apartment in the building, right? And they also gave me an extra room across the hall to use as a studio. Nice. So I continued working for the Department of Residence Life. I was looking for jobs to take me to more metropolitan areas. And I looked in Chicago and I got a job as the director of residence life at Columbia College. And I went there and told them, as soon as I got the job, I go over to the art department and I'm just like, hey, I'm new here. I've got a degree in art. I want to teach. I want to be in the classroom. I want to do something with you. And they were very generous and, you know, found a few classes that needed a adjunct, you know, and here you go. So I kept my hand in it because of the illustration. I was invited to teach a fashion illustration class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, I don't know anything about fashion. <laughs> but they're like, well, we're really interested in the illustration part of it. So, you know, here you go. But that was good. And then, yeah you're set up at this new spot. Are you pretty productive in terms of like making work and, you know, getting out there, trying to, trying to be active, showing, you know, meeting artists and all that stuff? I was, I, I did pretty well. Um, I, I recall these are those, I'm reaching back to the mid nineties here, but yeah, I kept working and creating work, exhibiting work, teaching when I could And when I left Columbia College, I actually started my own business doing interior painting, mural painting, custom wall finishes and interior design and that kind of thing. I was living in an apartment in Uptown. I I bought a condo and then I decided to go ahead and rent a studio space too over in Ravenswood. So I was that serious about my work, like I was paying for this space and, you know, making some pretty big paintings. I had some friends who worked in interior design and architecture that helped connect me with some folks. And, you know, I sold some paintings, had some decent shows. I was entering exhibitions, you know, those call for entry group show kind of things and getting into that. We're taking a quick break from this interview with Jeff Stevenson to remind you to go follow him on Instagram. That's at Jeff Stevenson Art. And of course, you can find plenty of other interviews. Great for listening on studiobreak.com. We got a big archive. Each of those posts have images of the artist's work, links to their websites. You can listen right there or subscribe on Spotify or Apple. That way you've always got something to listen to while you're working away in the studio. You can also subscribe to our newsletter, which will provide you updates of new podcasts as well as exhibitions at Studio Break Gallery and competitions like our 2023 Pro Competition that's going up through December 15th. Jeff's going to be selecting five artists to appear on the podcast, one solo exhibition, and a couple of small group exhibitions. You can, of course, find that all under the competition tab on studiobreak.com. And, of course, social media, so be sure to follow us there. All right, my coffee is topped off. Let's get right back into this interview with Jeff Stevenson. It sounds like, you know, just from some observations relative to that, you know, you'd been making work that was, I guess, based off of folks that you know, friends, people that are in and around your kind of daily life. Are you primarily like an artist that that works then from photo references? Do you ever kind of use models to kind of work through the things that you've been interested in? Maybe tell us a little bit about that side of things. Well, actually, during the Columbia College years, I met enough models that were working for the school for the figure drawing classes that I hired a couple of people to model for me 
studio in in Ravenswood. I, I did paintings of them while they posed. So I wasn't just photographing and working from photographs. And I think that was a really crucial part of it for me, that observational experience, and then being able to look at photographs and interpret those with the experience of having looked in real life. Mm-hmm being able to combine those things. And so for convenience purposes, I really primarily then just work from photographs at a certain point, but I also stayed with uh, observing. I love sketching and drawing objects. So in fact, this is a great place to kind of segue into some of the works that I have on display at Studio Break. The first group were the color square And what also runs parallel to this is I ran into a creative block at one point and was not making any work. And part of the reason was because of a bad relationship that I was immersed in. And I was letting that sort of overpower my creative life. And to get out of that, some friends actually recommended Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way book, which is fabulous. And that one comes up later in my life, too. Mm. Um, but I just started showing up and doing the work. And that's basically one of the things that she presents in her book. And so these color squares were simply also saying, well, even if you only have an hour, you can get something done. And then, of course, when you find an hour, it often will turn into more than an hour. So those color studies were really, I called them daily paintings. And I would just show up and I would just put paint on the canvas and make these color combinations that seemed right, that looked good, make compositions. And then that was very energizing for me. And later on, a few years later, I gave myself the assignment to do a drawing a day for 100 days, just because I thought, well, this would be interesting. It would activate my studio practice. There's that word. (laughs) And I wanted to keep my hand and my eye active and 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 working and so i made the commitment i'm going to do a drawing every day and sit down it usually you know takes an hour maybe a little more maybe a little less and make a nice little sketch i was really interested in objects with glass or reflective metal surfaces and things like that and i was drawing on cardboard so it had that nice medium tone and then just using regular graphite pencils to do the shading. And then I would pop in some acrylic white highlights to really give it that kind of zing and zowie. (laughs) And then pretty soon I had this collection of sketches and I started putting them into collages and those turned into vintage LP record album collages. And again, that was just the systematic way to come at it and consider showing up, doing the work. You don't have to overthink it. You just get in there and do the next right thing, the thing that seems to call to be done. As creatives, we we look at something and and there's this uh, voice, you know, that says, well, this needs to go this way or this needs to look that way. And that's what we need to let come forward in in the world. And so that was a, a great way to do it. In fact, you were arranging a piece yesterday. And I think you had just said something effective, like, I don't, I don't know how I got here, you know, like, I don't know how all this came to be. It strikes me then to, to kind of think about it, you know, would you describe yourself as maybe then just, you know, somebody that likes to follow that intuition, that studio side of things versus some methodical planner that's going to read the right theory or so- something that's going to ignite all of that? Because to me, it's it strikes me that that kind of impulse to kind of just make a lot of something, kind of see that all out, just kind of appeals to that intuition side, but that could be, you know, just a misreading. No, I think that's right. And the way I think I would say it is that it's both. For me, it works best when I have a vision of what I want and I really work hard to make that happen in the way that I envision it. And then at some point, the work takes over And it lets me know what it wants to become. So it also has that flexibility. So you you work really hard at creating the thing, but you also let the thing do what it needs to do to become what it needs to become. Because I think that there are moments where I get too, or any artist can get too much caught up in the vision 
I think I used to describe it as getting killed by a good idea. Mm -hmm. It's like when you have a really good idea, and we see our students do this a lot too. It's sort of like the first idea, here's your assignment. And then your first idea is like, oh yeah, that's what I'm going to do. It's like, it can kill, it can kill the good idea. Well, in the investigation, I'm assuming, you know, because like, you know, you do a hundred drawings in a hundred days. I have a feeling there's probably a big shift somewhere, you know, even in the twenties, I'm sure where you start kind of hitting a stride where it's just this repetition. And I always kind of talk to students about this radio lab episode where they are talking about the way that neural pathways are formed through really intensive repetition of things, you know, somebody playing guitar and not being able to do it correctly. And then the next day they can, they can kind of do it till it becomes kind of just automatic almost. I would imagine after a hundred hundred days you feel pretty in tune to, to drawing yeah yeah for sure and I, th- I think there was another thing too like anything anything that you really look at and you spend the time with it it becomes interesting mm-hmm. and it's this really rewarding process of observing something closely and it's just like look at this glass of water you know and the way the light comes through it and it's casting these sparks of light onto the table and these shadows and it's so elusive or you know whatever it is and and when you're doing a drawing every day you're sort of like oh what am I going to draw now I've drawn everything right well there's so many things in the world and it can be your car keys or your you know a tool or a fork or there you know there's so many little objects that can be observed so here's one for you the musillette the little cage that goes over the cork on a champagne bottle mm-hmm. right it's a thing it's an object it's a device it's an invention and it's really interesting when you observe it and try to draw it and and consider it so that's fun yeah there's like a mystery to it you know taking on something that's new or a challenge i don't know the the little things that you start kind of noticing i guess i don't know and then when they when I started putting them into collages, the temptation is to become formulaic. Like if I found something that worked in the collage, like I'm going to use these little strips of paper and I'm going to put them in this way, right? The temptation is to just repeat that in the next collage. So I really tried to be conscious of adding novelty. Every time I did another one, I could use the same basic ideas but then i needed to shift it a little bit further and find something new in the approach and so i definitely was seeing them as a a challenge to my creativity like i'm going to make these things in repetition assembly line but i'm not going to let myself become routinized to it and cookie cutter and like oh this works i'll just do this Are these, are these collage works something that started to kind of get you to think about other materials and slowly grow that side of things? Because obviously, you know, your current work explores more installation-based type things. There's more interaction with the type of found objects and things that you start kind of utilizing. And I would imagine it seems like a natural extension, you know, when you start cutting and in, cutting into paintings or reassembling them, you start kind of thinking about them more as like material. Yeah, for sure. Robert Rauschenberg is one of the artists that fascinated me the most. And of course, his assemblage found object compositions. And he was such a joyful, prolific person. He just was on fire with making artwork. There's um, a book that's called How to Steal Like an Artist. I really appreciate the, the sentiment behind it because really all creativity is built on other creatives work really and so I allow myself to be inspired by other artists and to look at what they're doing and he was certainly one of them and then there's another artist um, Brian Detmer I think is his name and he was showing at Packer Gallery and he was doing these altered books where he was taking books and cutting them apart in a really spectacular way that made them a sculptural object and there was something about that that really captured my imagination so i started working with altered books and that led into doing these assemblage compositions you know i'm still a painter and i wanted to keep the painting as part of it so 
that was my puzzle to sort of figure out. And by kind of incorporating more found things, is that like a way to kind of, you know, build that narrative and to talk about some of the, I guess, ideas of, you know, self masculinity, et cetera, that, you know, your, your work is kind of largely explored. It's amazing to me that culturally we assign gender or femininity or masculinity to objects. Mm-hmm. And there are languages that are masculine and feminine, the words and and all of that. So yes, those those objects to me are are ways to open up this conversation. It helps us to see ourselves as a culture. Like we have to look at this and say, you know, why is it that we, you know, tell little kids that this is for you, but it's not for you. You know, this is a boy's toy. This is a girl's toy. And culturally we've, you know, we've really come a long way. And I think that a lot of things have changed, but the more they change, the more they stay the same. There are still a lot of baggage from before, like the figurines that I have in the piece in Studio Break right now, those little figurines are the men from... Uh, an age gone by. So they're wearing ruffles and they have knickers and they have little buckled shoes and the wigs and the makeup. And and then it's fascinating to me that that existed and that it exists now in this relic and that there are these little souvenirs or that people want them. And at one point they must've been popular because the thrift store has a lot of them. And those really became interesting to me when the current zeitgeist around drag shows and around the laws that are being passed that people have to dress in the way that is associated with the gender that they were assigned at birth and then it's like well what age are you talking about because that was what men wore then Mm -hmm. they wore powdered wigs and makeup and high heel shoes and ruffles and and jewelry and so, you know, it, it's this ridiculous thing that we're unaware of what we're doing sometimes as a culture. Like it just is this just fascinating thing to me. And so it sounds like then, you know, a lot of those objects and and things that you wind up utilizing speak to that and or kind of examine that. Another another thing that I kind of note too is that there's a lot of these kind of like split portraits, combined portraits, fragments of portraits. Is that something that you kind of feel is like an extension of that idea of like, I don't know, being drawn in different directions or different ways or? All the faces that I'm painting are from found selfies. So these are pictures of people that I found on dating sites and they are strangers to me. And so I'm using their image and I like the idea of the split because of our swiping and and like going to the next one and the next one and the next one where we, whether we're on a dating site or not, we become the product. You know, people are developing their brand. People are curating their profile so that they're presenting a life to the viewer, the audience, how they want to be perceived. And that's interesting to me. And, and so the split face was partly that idea of not seeing a whole person, but I'm also putting them in combination with each other. So it's also like a little matchmaking thing. And sometimes it's for like people that would never be matched together, putting them together. So there's a tension there or, or just these faces look good together. So I'll see how I can make a composition out of it. And then I guess, you know, in terms of like your, your studio, then I'm assuming then you have a number of these, you know, paintings in process. And then, you know, you've got all these materials kind of going about, is that something again, that's, you know, just trial and error, kind of see what happens when I do this. Like, again, there's a number of pieces that incorporate these big, you know, tie elements, like their floral arrangements, um, you know, which are really fun, but maybe talk a little about how you start utilizing these different materials. One of my friends who's still on dating sites, uh, because now that I'm in a relationship with Efren, I'm not on dating sites. But when my other friend who is on, I go through his profile and he's like, yeah, you can click on any of them you want to. So I start grabbing and I'm like, here, let me save all these portraits. So then I have this, you know, a dozen or so pictures. I start to make the paintings of them. So I go through and 
try to make a juicy, brushy, beautiful painting. I, I want it to feel like I've really put time and energy into it. And I want to love it. I want to love it as a portrait and as a painting. And then I want to get away from this idea of just doing academic portraiture, because like, that's not my goal. My goal is to create a different kind of experience. And I'm also exploring the idea of the painting as an object. And so by cutting it, it reveals the objectness of it more, I think, and or interrupting it with lines or incorporating it into these assemblage necktie medusa heads that kind of thing disrupts our idea of what a portrait is and then the portrait becomes part of it's an object within these other objects and i guess you might get this question all the time i don't know but are you then kind of painting these fully or are you you know painting halves of them because again the way that they're they're kind of joined together you don't know if they're just abruptly run through a, a table saw. And then usually there's some kind of material, you know, like that could be, I think, shells in one or I think spent condoms in another or something like that. So, you know, you're you're finding ways to kind of, I don't know, use objects to kind of maybe maybe you could elaborate a little bit better. I don't want to, you know, put any words in your mouth. <laughs> yeah. In my studio, I've got a lot of different objects that are of interest to me. I have a friend who likes to go to. Uh, flea markets and sales and he'll pick up like you know these odd wooden objects that are a box full of them and he's like here you go here are some potato mashers or whatever it is you know it's like these weird so I've got a lot of a variety of things around he's also the person who supplies me with the bullet shells which I've incorporated into a number of my pieces so having the stuff around and then I'll feel sort of connected to or interested in a material or an object and I'll consider it then well how would this work and how could I use this and what does it represent or I need something red in this painting so I'm going to put this C clamp in here because it's mm -hmm. a red C clamp <laughs> and it's masculine <laughs> well I'm curious too you know you know obviously at some point you know as we've been talking you you know picked up your current post and you know started organizing exhibitions and has that role kind of like changed the way that you, you know, think about your own work or kind of given you more license to, I guess, do what you want? I mean, again, it's, it's interesting because like for me, you know, interviewing people, I feel like there's so much that's open, you know, in terms of what people kind of choose to make. It gives me a lot of freedom to kind of be like, you know, there's an audience out there for this, you know, it might not be everybody's thing, but how, how has it been for you then as you start kind of curating shows and organizing a space and, and, you know, having that, that side of things. At one point I developed a creativity course and that's the Julian cameras, Cameron's, um, the artist's way. And I also use Mahalia Csikszentmihalyi finding flow. And it's this idea of human creativity is in all of us and we all should bring that forward we all should make things we should all be creative whether you're a chef and you're creating food or you're you know you love doing this or you love doing that and so that's one side of my professional work is to encourage and bring forth anybody's creativity however as soon as someone wants to enter the world of the fine art, the conversation that's going on in the fine art world, then you've got to step up your game. You need to know what that conversation's about. You need to know what's gone before you. You need to know art history. And what you're making is then scrutinized in a different way. So if you're a Sunday afternoon painter and you are painting butterflies and wildflowers, that's perfectly fine, let's do that. But as soon as you enter that into an exhibition to be considered for a serious art world purposes, then it's kind of like, come on, <laughs> you, you know, you've got to take yourself more seriously. You've got to do the work to, to bring it up. And so one of the things that I love the most about my job is that it really runs the gamut. We're working with students who are just starting out. We're working with more accomplished we're working with them professional artists that we're bringing in to inspire our students. So I'm working with a lot of different things. Like we have the Illinois Community College Juried Exhibition, and those are really fun to curate. I have a guest curator actually select the work, 
And then I get to install it in the space and trying to place it so that the works look good together and that everything's shown to its optimal possibility, that everything is looks the best that it can look. And, you know, this is student work. Some of them are still finding their legs, so to speak. And but it's exciting to see when it comes together, like you can group things together over here and they sort of talk to each other and harmonize and they look better because they're in the company of other artworks. And so those kinds of things definitely have influenced my own work. When I'm in the classroom and I'm teaching the fundamentals and the foundation concepts, preaching to myself, <laughs> it's like the composition of one third, two thirds, or, you know, find that golden rectangle. Or it, so when I get stuck in my own work or I, it needs some sort of resolve, I will often come back to those things. Create a color mm. triad in your work. Maybe it needs a little more contrast. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and again, maybe that's the big plus side of curating and organizing artists and kind of being able to see so many different types of work is to ask yourself questions as well. Oh, absolutely. And think about how that kind of applies. And then kind of in a similar way, you know, I think we're both maybe trying to kind of contribute to that, you know, maybe camaraderie that we started experiencing way back in school that, you know, you know, kind of spills out of, you know, the classroom and, and, you know, out to exhibitions or around a campfire or whatever that thing is, um, which is, again, I guess, Maybe not a, a perfect segue, but that's why it's so exciting to have you on board to to be a curator for for Studio Break, just because, you know, you're going to be selecting artists for upcoming shows and exhibitions, and you get to kind of, you know, see what things are out there that you can piece together to make these other connections that, you know, probably lead you right back to your own work. And And along those lines, I will reveal that I am always drawn to serial projects where someone is like my hundred drawings in a hundred days or the, you know, the hundred record album covers that subsequently came after that and other projects, you know, like Motherwell's lyric suite where he, I think he did like 600 ink drawings on Japanese paper. And it, that's sort of like the, the, the pinnacle, but, but he was really trying to get into the, thoughts or the impulse of making work before we start thinking. He was trying to get ahead of our analytic mind and how we start to scrutinize what we're doing. Even as we're doing it, we start to judge it. And I think he was, I'm not giving it justice, my description of it, but I think that's what he, his goal was to sort of get over that human characteristic well, it, so it's interesting to think about these mass series then. Are you kind of secretly working away on, you know, something that drops in the future or how does that process work as you start to kind of, you know, like, again, you're making all these sculptures, all these installation pieces, as well as these paintings at this point, is that something where, you know, you kind of have that, those main areas of work and then you kind of start one of these, I guess, side projects uh, on the, in peripheral to that, or is it something that just all comes at the same time? I sadly am not working on any serial natured projects at the moment. In the past, I was a sketchbook junkie and I had a little pocket size, maybe six inch square pocket size sketchbook and or smaller. And I would carry those around with me everywhere. And if we were sitting for 10 minutes, I was sketching. And I loved going to listen to live music and I would sketch the musicians. I would sketch the people sitting in the green mill and, and on travels and all of that kind of stuff. And I always thought that a sketchbook had to relate to your quote unquote, more serious work, you know, like, Oh, I'm making the sketch that will eventually become a painting or, you know, this is an idea for a painting. And then I realized uh, through a friend of mine, a friend who understands and embodies the idea of finding awe in the world, in the everyday, in the simple things that sketchbooks are that, that they can just be observational. You know, she came back from a trip and had this sketchbook journal from her travels and it was, you know, everything. And that she's the one who got me started in doing that and really uh, energized and, and, brought me 
a lot of joy doing that. Yeah, it seems like a good practice. I know as I talked to a lot of artists, you know, there's folks that are very religious about sketchbooks. There's folks that never utilize sketchbooks. But if you think about it, just being in that that environment kind of keeps you open to, to seeing new things or, you know, recognizing observations. In the most basic way, it's allowing yourself joy. It's like just enjoying it is worth that's it right just doing it is so enjoyable that that, that's okay (laughs) it doesn't have to lead to anything else it's it's already done its work absolutely and you know we've been talking about the the various roles that you have as a artist a curator um, how you manage to put all that together maybe talk a little about the details of this exhibition and and how you kind of uh, brought these different collections of work and including the the current work Yeah, when I was putting the list together, I realized, you know, it's that time of year where people are more likely interested in small works or things that they could give as gifts and that kind of thing. And so I was geared towards looking at some of that work of my own, smaller things, more affordable. And then I was reminded of the Artists Support Pledge, which was this online dynamic that happened on uh, Instagram where the it's a basic concept of you price your work at I think they're at $250 or less and then as an artist once you sold up to you know $1000 worth of sales or whatever then you in turn would buy another artist's work and it was a way of sort of paying it forward or supporting each other and this of course happened during the pandemic and I started following the hashtag I did exhibit some of my work in that way in the past and it was really productive. It was really nice to have different people see the work and and to sell some things. So I, I plan to um, connect with that. It'll give us more of an online connection. And then of course, seeing it in person is the better way to shop for art. Yeah, absolutely. And, and obviously, you know, I pride myself in making very fun openings that, that do have, uh, I think, lovely charcuterie. Just, just saying. Um, so again, I, I do hope that people come out. Obviously, take a look at the work, and and you know, I always feel awkward saying it, but you know, sharing some great conversations. I think there's something that I've said to almost every artist that's been out here, or any any guests, is that you know, if you make it out here, you're you're pretty cool. Once again, there's there's two opportunities to see it: Sunday, December third, from two to five p.m., and of course, Saturday, December 9th, from four to eight p.m. So, easily pick one of those dates to come on out and say hello. And as we're wrapping up, please just remind everybody where where's the best place to kind of see your work and and to see what's going on in your studio. Yeah, yeah. And thank you for being so generous to arrange to have two events for the show. I think that's really nice, a Sunday afternoon and a Saturday evening. And I live in the south suburbs. Chicagoland is a big area. And I think that people that take a full advantage of everything that's being offered are going to... I get around. I really like to get around. <laughs> I go anywhere that something's happening, you can count me in. So yeah, I hope people come out. It, you've got a great space. It's It works and you do throw a good party. So it'll be fun. Instagram, uh, Jeff Stevenson Art is the best place to see my artwork. And then I also have Artist Jeff, which is more of my shenanigans and my travels. But there are some fun things there too. But yeah, again, uh, excited, excited to have, have this uh, in the books and course excited to have this opening coming up so yeah again thanks so much for for chatting with me this evening it was a complete pleasure thank you thank you david thanks once again to jeff for joining me please come on out to his solo exhibition opening at studio break gallery cross-section the many faces of jeff stevenson once again we got a double opening so sunday december 3rd from 2 to 5 p.m and saturday december 9th from 4 to 8 p.m you can join us and see some amazing work you can find gallery information listed in Instagram. There's a link right there to our gallery tab on studiobreak.com for our address here in West Chicago. So come join us at Studio Break Gallery December 3rd or December 9th. Of course, if you want to see more of Jeff's work, you can follow him on Instagram. Be sure to do that at Jeff Stevenson Art. 
I also want to remind any artists listening that Jeff is our juror for our 2023 pro competition that's running through December 15th. So if you'd like to appear on the podcast, we're giving away five spots for that. We're giving away a solo exhibition and a couple small group exhibitions. Once again, go to studiobreak.com, look under the competition page, or you can also find that in our Instagram bio. It's really easy to apply. You submit a small fee, you send off all your information, and you are done. If you know any artists that are interested, please help spread the word. We always appreciate it. If you've never heard of Studio Break, please remember we've got a whole website with a big archive, 298 episodes of Studio Break. You can see all sorts of images, find links, and of course, listen right there on Studio Break, or subscribe in Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts, and of course, rate and review it. It's really helpful for others to find this podcast, and we appreciate it. Music for today's podcast is by Golden Shadow, which features myself, Ben Cohan, and Brett Beery. If you'd like to see some of Ben's paintings, follow him on Instagram at mbencohanstudio. Of course, you can find Brett Beery and some of the albums that he's produced linked in Instagram at Brett Beery. And you can also follow us at Golden Shadow Band on Instagram. There's a link there for our EP, Lawn Dreams, that we put out. If you're interested in the artist behind this voice, please, of course, check out my work. It's all integrated in Studio Break. David Linaway, of course. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, on Instagram, at David Linaway. And lastly, of course, you can find us on Facebook. Be sure to like our page there. You can find us on Twitter, X, at Studio Break. And, of course, on Instagram, at Studio underscore Break. Be sure to give us a shout-out if you enjoyed today's episode or found anything particularly inspiring from Jeff's interview. As we're wrapping up, I just want to say thanks for listening. Hope you are doing fantastic work in the studio, staying productive through the end of the year. We'll talk to you real soon.